Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Sammy O'Brien. I'm very excited for our guest today. Most of you will be familiar with the name Fiona Simpson. Serving as the first ever female president of the National Farmers Federation, Fiona has orchestrated remarkable positive transformations for the Australian agricultural sector. Originally from a property just outside of Armidale in New South Wales, Fiona met her husband in Sydney. The bright lights of the bustling city, a stark contrast to Gunnedah, where she and her future husband, a fourth generation farmer, would soon call home. The fertile black soil of the Liverpool Plains is where they raise their two children, Tom and Jemima, and continue to farm alongside Tom and his young family. Fiona's grounded and affable nature positions her seamlessly as an industry leader, allowing young women around the country to envision a viable career in rural Australia and the agricultural realm. Fiona, I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. We'll get to your career a little bit later on, but first I'd love to talk to you about your early life and how you came to be where you are today. So let's start with where you grew up as a child. Yeah, um, and it's great to, to talk to you too, Sammy. I love listening to the podcasts and all the different experiences of people um, on the land. So so great to be here. Um, so I grew up um, on a farm, actually, um, just outside of Armadale in New South Wales. And I actually thought we were really remote. We were 15 kilometres out of town, so I thought that was really remote. Um, but in actual fact, my dad um, was a, um, a farm manager for a very small family corporate company, so not our own. Um, and he came, we came to um, that farm when I was only about three. And dad then stayed till he retired at 65 and I'd um, gone and married and done all those things by then. So that was my home and I knew it as my home. And it was always, our, you know, we ran it like our farm. That was a great, great family that that dad worked for. And um, we had a, um, a really happy childhood on the farm. And um, it was a sheep and cattle property. So we um, you know, did all the things on the farm as if it was our own. We helped muster and stuff in the holidays and went into the shearing shed and did all that and, and used our horses to muster the cattle, worked in the sheep yards on the, on the holidays, on our holidays, drenching and jetting and doing all those things. And so, um, and yet we were only 15 k's out of town. Um, which meant that we could go in and out to school, in and out to sport. I was quite musical back in those days. Um, and so I played the piano and the flute and went in and out of, of music lessons and um, had a, a really full life there with my mum and my dad and my brother, Andrew. It sounds like something out of an Alison Lester book. It sounds beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know, at the time, though, um, typical child, you don't really, I mean, looking back on it now, I think, wow, how lucky was I? How idyllic was it? You know, we had the best of both worlds and, you know, the farm. And because, you know, we were actually um, didn't own the farm ourselves, sometimes that is a little bit easier and financially because um, you don't, you know, if there's droughts, then you actually still receive the salary. You feel the drought like it's your own farm, but financially you're not quite as exposed as you are and as I, I know now, um, owning owning our own farm. But um, no, it's, I mean, looking back, of course, never appreciated it, um, but um, looking looking at it now, I think um, what, a, what, a, what an idyllic childhood I used to get home from school, come on the bus, um, saddle up my horse, fascination, fassy, um, and go for a ride. I mean, how how cool is that? So pretty lucky, really. What 
would be your earliest and most fond memory of that time of your life? Um, I think very much the just the freedom. So, you know, you could go out into the paddocks, you could go down to the creek, we yabbied in the creek, we saddle up the horses and, and muster. I loved working in the sheepyards with Dad, um, you know, and um, I loved loved all of that. And so I think those are the memories that I treasure and just being able to to wander around really be pretty free range and and do our own things. So that freedom is something I think that often, you know, people on farms take for granted when you start living in the cities and when you start being involved in, in urban areas and things, then that from that's pretty special and um, definitely you get on the farms tenfold. Tell me a little bit about your own family, your two kids and your husband. Yeah, so my husband, Ed, and our kids, Jemima and Thomas. And Tom um, now lives on our farm with us and his um, lovely wife, Georgina, who was an English backpacker and, um, of course, met my son and and opted to stay. Uh, They have two uh, gorgeous grandchildren, uh, Florence, Floss, and Wallace, Wall. So uh, we're all on the farm together, which is just so fantastic. And um, and then Jemima, who's now uh, married an engineer and lives in the Hunter Valley, and she has a gorgeous daughter, Vera, um, with another one on the way. So we have lots of grandchildren. They're all under three at the moment, and um, it's just a fabulous family time. And um, we all yeah, grew up, our, our family grew up on the plantation, which is our um, my husband's family farm. It's been in the family for um, nearly 95 years now. And so we had a very happy time there and um, living with Ed's, Ed's father and um, his, his um, Ed's stepmother. And then we've all, um, you know, just sort of now moved, done, done, done house moves and, you know, we all do that on farms as we move around and do different things. So it's been great. How beautiful that you've got your two grandkids living on the farm with you. That's very, very special. It is. And again, you know, some of these things, I think, on on farms, you you just sort of take a bit for granted that that you can see family, that they can pop in at any time, and they do. And um, that's lovely. It's something that very special to be involved with their lives at, at so closely, particularly when they're so little and they're they're really cute, and um, they're not. They haven't you know developed into a point where the the granny and grandpa aren't granny and pop pop aren't that cool anymore. So it's it's great. It's it's lots of fun. Your kids, of course, have grown up now, but how did you or do you navigate work life and family life and farm life? How do you do it all? Yeah, it, you know, it's the juggle. That's the hardest thing, I think, um, when you take on careers like I have. And it's my 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 current career um, didn't start until um, Tom, my youngest child, was um, in year 11, I think. Um, so this is a career that very much um, I hadn't planned on. I hadn't really had. I I was actually more, you know, I had worked off farm quite regularly doing different gigs, different shuffles, you know, to 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 sort of fill, fill my interests, but they'd never been sort of full-time things. And then suddenly to, you know, embark on a career that has taken me away from home, you know, pretty much every day of, every day of the week for, for um, many weeks of the year um, and to juggle 
you know, the home life. And of course, I've um, been quite a, a home caring type of, you know, it'd be pre, pre this career. I've spent a lot of time at home and, you know, my job's very much on the farm or in sort of the business side of the business and and doing all the, the day-to-day chores that you do in a house as well. And to go from that to being away all the time was, um, I think, really interesting. And I didn't do it till my kids were older. Um, but even so, you know, that it still has meant that I have, um, you know, been really busy at different times when there's been events and things that have been really important to them. So I have felt, you know, quite often that I have missed out on things that I would have quite liked to do and had to shuffle those things. So for me, it's just about juggling. It's about shuffling. It's trying to prioritise and be really true to what does guide you and drive you. But also being aware, I guess, that sometimes if you do take on some of these roles, there are things that happen that you actually just can't control and you have to deal with at the time. And um, you hope that your family cuts you a little bit of slack (laughs) when those things happen. There is so much pressure on rural women to do it all. The family, business, committees, often a side hustle. What is your advice of being able to juggle, juggle it all? And should rural women have to do that? Yeah, you know, I think this is something I'm asked so often. And, um, you know, nowadays we have so many young women on farms that are so skilled, so multi-skilled. You know, nowadays, I mean, even in my generation, it was really starting to happen, but the, the current generation definitely, you know, most of them have got tertiary skills. Most of them have, have already, you know, um, been been out in the marketplace or out working and, and got really fulfilling jobs. So we're bringing these amazing cohort of women back to our farms. Um, and then how do they try and do it all you know how do they keep career going how do they be a be a good farm partner how do they participate in farm life how do they have a family they're all the amazing things that we women can do that's the fabulous thing about being a woman is that there's all these different facets to your life and um yes men have different facets too to theirs absolutely but but to have to be able to actually, you know, have give birth to children and um, have that, you know, that mothering instinct in you, and to make the most of that opportunity, and then to to be able to fulfil, you know, your, your career needs and your your intellectual needs and your 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 partnership needs and everything else as well. It's pretty special. So I, I just say to young women, look, you can have it all, and you absolutely should have it all, but you might not have it all at once and you might not want to have it all at once because if you do do that then sometimes I think it risks you shortchanging some of those amazing parts of your life that you've got the opportunity to experience right then and there and they're the sorts of things that really also I think intrinsically help you find who you are and help you find other parts of your personality and help you find other parts of, you know, your being that you need to fulfil if you're going to end up being a whole person and a a fulfilled person and um, really comfortable um, in your skin and where you are and where you're going and how you contribute to whatever you want to do. So I think sometimes, you know, people get want to have it all at once you know they want to do they want to have kids they want to have a family they want to have a partner they want to do a farm they want to have a job they want to have a career they want all these things um and yeah they're all competing things but maybe maybe just take the time to make sure that you're prioritizing the right things at the right time and be aware that you've got plenty of time 
to actually do it all. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And it is also really lovely that there is that opportunity now for the girls to get off the farm, you know, like they're for so long it was just you were stuck on the farm and now there's just so much opportunity to go and do exactly what you want and I think that that's really brilliant. Yeah and do you know what's exciting too I think is that so you know I think a a lot of people and a lot of people still do do things off farm to in terms of their own careers and their own interests but the other thing that I think is fabulous is seeing um, now people doing things that probably align with their skill set but build and add to their farm business, build and add to their communities and, um, you know, are doing, you know, making, bringing skills into their communities that they've never had before, which has enabled the communities to do things that they've never had before. So in my own community in the Liverpool Plains, um, you know, we started with the support actually of the New South Wales government who wanted to do a pilot, an agritourism pilot, and um, all these amazing women, young women in our district who are doing side hustles um, of a little bit of accommodation or they're doing some value adding or they're doing whatever, and you hear amazing stories um, of all these things that are just you know, really outproofing and building their own farm businesses to start with, with a different aspect to that. And also then they're, you know, really community adding and, and building their communities as well. And I, I just think it's fabulous to see women, young women too, a lot of them young women, stepping up and um, and doing the side hustles. And I guess also a lot of the, the men um, also then stepping into the parenting role um, so easily as well because, I, you know, in our day that was you know, the, I think my husband always thought he was babysitting if he was looking after our kids. Um, whereas I know for Tom, that word is outlawed because he's just parenting if he's looking after the kids. Um, but he can quite comfortably look after the kids. Um, and hopefully he's not too bad in the house. Um, but that's, that, that's I think that's the change that's happening. And I guess technology, of course, has helped with some of that. But also, I guess it's just been um, it's the women that have been coming back with these amazing skills that that are wanting to to do utilize those skills in our communities, our rural communities, and on our farms. Did you always think that you'd end up doing the type of work that you're doing? Never. So, so to start with, to be honest, growing up on the farm in Armadale or outside of Armadale, I actually never thought that I would end up on a farm at all. Um, I thought, you know, that farming perhaps even though I liked it it wasn't for me I thought I was going to be a city city dweller I liked the bright lights I liked the um the career options I liked travel a lot um but so when I met my husband in the middle of the city (laughs) um that sort of ruined all that and um I had a big big u-turn in terms of my career um but um no I think it's you know it just changes all the time um and of course my current career or the one partly which I've just stepped out of but other bits of it are still continuing um, the I never ever dreamed that I would do um what I've been doing I would never ever have dreamed that I would have taken on the roles that I've just had I never ever dreamed about being the first woman to do anything um I never dreamed about getting involved in in um, farm advocacy groups I never dreamt of any of that and for me you know, it's just passion that really drove me to do what I do and passion that's actually enabled me to have this most amazing journey over the past, oh gosh, nearly nearly 20 years now. Was there a point in your life that you remember thinking, oh, this is the pivot, this is, this is going to take me in this direction? 
Yeah, but I don't think I ever realised that it would be as big as it's been. And so, and that that moment was we, um, when, and I think most people know now that the reason, the, the way I got involved was that I got involved in a community group at, um, in our community that was fighting coal mining on the Liverpool Plains. And the BHP um, was granted a coal mining licence and Shenhua came closely after that. And the community were completely left out of that process and felt very strongly about the agricultural value of the plains and the water of the plains and that, that agriculture hadn't even been considered. So we were formed a community group. I was involved in that. And I do vividly remember us all sitting around. So in actual fact, my father-in-law, who had been the mayor of, mayor of Corindai for 12 years, came along and said to the group, look, you'd all, you know, you all very passionately believe what you believe. And in this room here, you know, of course, you all are all in fierce agreement that you're doing the right thing. But if you really want to create change and if you really want to influence opinions, you need to get out of this room and you need to start working in places where you are going to, to make change and influence opinions. So you should be looking at local government. You should be looking at advocacy groups. You should be looking at any group where um, they can influence politicians. And so we all looked around the group and um, we all divided it. We all said, okay, so who's got some spare time to, to go on council? And so... I, I did. <laughs> so I put my hand up. Um, and then who's got some spare time to go down to New South Wales Farmers Conference? Oh, my God, who would have thought of doing that? I did. Um, so there we, there I was. And that then launched me. You know, one thing led to another. You know, going going to New South Wales Farmers Conference led, led me to be in the executive, led me to be the president, led me to do this, led me to So it's all just rolled from there. And that was, but, I, I you know, I think it was probably the pivotal moment. Um but and I remember ringing Ed because we sort of talked about it and I've never done, you know, we, we this is a partnership thing. You know, he's been as passionate as I've been about it. It's just that I've been the one that's gone out and advocated for everything. Uh, and I remember saying to him, OK, so I'm going to go on council. I'll put my hand up. I'll stand for election and see if I get on council. And I did. And then I said, OK, so when I go to conference, then I shouldn't really put my hand up for any committees or anything. And he went, no, no, that's good. Anyway, and I did. <laughs> So um, anyway, that's just that was the moment, but I wouldn't have ever forecast that it could have been the sort of journey that it's been. You're so gracious in your delivery and you're intelligent and you managed to get your point across quietly and effectively. How have you developed your leadership style over the years? You have to be, um, so that when you're talking about leadership and these, you know, if if you are embarking on a leadership journey, hopefully mostly you're able to do a bit of training and you, you know, you go and talk to people and you do a leadership course and all those things. I, I didn't do any of that because that just, I didn't have time. I was well on the path before all those things happened. Um, but I think if you do do leadership training, you know, and you talk about leadership and you listen to amazing leaders um, like Kristen Ferguson, people like that, you know, it is very much about your heart and being authentic. And the word authentic is the word that a lot of people use in relation to really good leaders. And I have always, so at, at the very beginning, I was told, you know, don't, you know, be who you are, Fiona, don't pretend to be anyone else, you know, and in a world that was really very blokey, Back in the day, um, I was the first woman president of New South Wales Farmers. I was the first non-wool grower president of, of um, New South Wales Farmers. My board was all males. Um, it was very male. Um, one of the males, and I was supported by males all the time to do what I was doing, um, but one of them said, don't try and be a bloke. Don't try and be me. Don't try and be anyone else other than you. And so I've always followed that advice. And 
I've always um, been able to really quite truthfully believe and set up processes as I've gone onto boards and, and set up strategies and all those different things. I've been able to hopefully put in place strategies that have, that have developed good policies that I've been really proud to represent. I've always believed in everything that I've been able to say and I actually do consciously like having conversations with people and talking to them about things that are important. So I think all of the things, they don't happen overnight. Um, you do have to develop your own style but I guess the first thing is knowing, and I think this is the step that often people don't take. Sometimes people really think they want to get onto boards or they want to be the head of this or they want to be the head of that or they have this role in mind that they think they're going for without really digging deep into the why, you know, who are you, what drives you, what makes you want to do that role, why do you think, what, what in you will make you good at that role? And is that the right role for you? And um, all of those sorts of really deep thoughts and soul-searching bits and things, you have to, they don't come to you overnight. Um, they often come to you over time. And once you have that deep understanding of who you are, um, the goods, the bads, the things you, but more importantly, the things that are, that drive you, they're innate, they're, they're really important things to you, then that enables you to be much more authentic in, in what you say and to have some truthful conversations in a way where hopefully you can convince people um, to your way of thinking. Have you had some significant challenges being a female in an all-male room throughout your career? Yeah, sometimes I have. Um, nothing horrendous. Um, but I have had some I have had some significant experiences. Um, I've had one, for example, with a male politician when I was in state in the state organization where he literally just stood over me and berated me for a very long time. And that um, I, I held it together <laughs> until I got out of the room. Um, and then I just could hardly get, I couldn't even get back to the hotel without um, bursting into floods of tears. Uh, and massive big sobs. But actually the thing that I think uh, upset me the most about that experience was that this man was a pig anyway. Um, but the the thing that upset me the most was that it, it happened in, a, uh, in the office of a woman politician who knew what was going to happen and didn't protect me. And that I think, um, I don't actually blame her for that because uh, that's particularly, you know, it, it, it was the way that politics was. Hopefully it's starting to change a little bit. But that's definitely something that, you know, has happened in politics over the years. And um, whilst I didn't blame her for that, um, it, it hurt me more than anything, I think, knowing that she probably knew what this man was going to do when he came into her office unannounced. We were having like an evening drink together, which happens a lot in, in um, you know, as you get to know some of the politicians a little bit better, you might pop in and just have a coffee or something. Um, or just an unwind at the end of a day, and that's what we were doing. And he popped, he popped in and stood over me and and berated me. Um, so that was probably the standout thing that I won't ever forget. Um, other than that, I think the the different 
natures and I guess the different things, the different communication styles of men and women often. Um, I had a lot of folks who thought that um, advocacy was like playing a, um, a game of, of rugby and you had to get on the field and you had to have bloody noses and you had to have a lot of push and shove and all that stuff. And um, I'm not into physical games at all. I can push and shove with my, I'd rather mind games. Um, and that just undid them. They just really couldn't work that out at all. They they, they had no nowhere to go. Um, so it's just different styles, different personality styles. And I think for blokes, uh, for me, I always as I say, didn't adjust my style. I um, I understood their style um, and they, I haven't, you know, I, I was able to get a lot of supporters in, amongst the men, which is great. And um, because, you know, cultural change, if you're going to have cultural change where men and women feel comfortable, that's what you have to do. Fiona, you've now served your two terms as president at the NFF. In your recent address to the Rural and National Press Club, you said, For far too long, we saw only the faces and heard only the voices of white middle-aged farmers. If you asked an urban Australian to describe a farmer to a sketch artist, that's inevitably the image you would get. Um, That's not to diminish the value and importance of those men who do in fact make up the lion's share of the farming sector, but women have always been an equal driving force of our farming business. They were visible in the day-to-day operations, but they weren't visible in the boardrooms and leadership structures of our industry. Do you think that in your time at the NFF, you've seen that image of the um, image of the farmer change at all? I do. It's something that hasn't happened, just hasn't happened. We've had to drive a lot of it, and it's somewhere where we've still got a lot of work to go. So, I thought we were doing quite well. So, it's something that we focused on very early on in my term at the NFF, and people as the first female president. In its 40-year history, a lot of people were saying to me, so what's going to be your legacy? And one of my legacies definitely has to be that there are other women now at that level and other women that, you know, it doesn't have to be the president, but there needs to be women involved at all levels of that organisation advocating because that's what our that our industry is. It's women and men. Um, we need to have those diverse views if we're going to get the best outcomes for farmers. So that was definitely um, my legacy. And so we've tried really hard through what we've done at the NFF, through some of our projects, through what I've done personally, flooding the media channels with my face everywhere, um, to, um, you know, to things like our diversity in agricultural leadership programs, supporting other programs like the Invisible Farm, all those different things that we've we've made a shout out for, um, to, to make sure that there's plenty of media now telling our story, lots and lots of different programs we've done to make sure that there's lots of media footage out there now of, of young farmers, of women farmers, men farmers, people doing all sorts of different things in agriculture not just cows and sheep they're 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 grain farming they're cotton farming they're in the the sea there's you know seafood there's horticulture all those things but then you know just the other day this picture on the on the financial review of cattle that were in in head bales which was really a very strange picture to have there and that showed me even though that's not about men and women it just showed me how far we've still got to go when it comes to people really understanding agriculture um, and what agriculture is about and how we promote our industry so I think if you still if you google farm farmer now you might get um a bit of a variety of views, which is really good. Um, we've certainly made sure that women pictures have fronted a lot of our campaigns and are intrinsic in a lot of our campaigns. But, you know, I think, and now, of course, women 
there are a lot of women coming into our industry. Um, we've always had women and men an equal share on farms. Now, when we look at the agronomists coming through, the you know enormous intakes of people doing tertiary studies in ag and stuff, a lot of them are women. Um, so it's it's really starting to change. Um, but we've got to keep our eye on that and make sure that we continue to drive out the image of our industry. And how do we encourage more women to become involved in industry representation? How do we get the right people in there? Well, I think it's about networking and it's about promoting that side of our industry as well. It's about making sure we've got good pipelines of people coming in, that we get people involved early in advocacy and policy advocacy. And certainly one of the things that um, drove me to be involved was that I started to realise that no matter how well we could do things on our farm, no matter how good the seasons were, no matter how well we farmed, no matter how much effort we put into it, no matter how, how successful we were, Ultimately, some of the things that did affect what we could do on our farms and how we did things on our farms were the policies um, in government, um, things around our trade policies, our biosecurity policies, some of the things that sound very boring in some ways, but I've actually found to be really exciting once I've got my head into them, things around the environment and sustainability and carbon and soils and all those things. Um, they're fascinating. And you know, once you start to get involved in the development of those policies, then you realise how important it is to have farmers, women, men, young, old, everyone, um, actually working with government on the development of those policies. Because if we don't, then government still develops the policies. They just do it without our input. And you know, to to the detriment of of uh, the Australian agricultural industry. So it's really, really important that we keep developing that talent pool of young young people, of young women, um, of middle. You know, I hate the term middle aged, but <laughs> mid career. I think mid career. I think we say now mid career women, um, because a lot of those people have so much to give, mm-hmm. and um, and advocacy is even though, you know, people sort of grimace when you say it and a lot of people have said to me, oh, my God, how have you managed to do that? In actual fact, it's been incredibly rewarding. It's taken me all around the world. It's taken me all around Australia. Um, I've personally known, you know, many of the, you know, the last the last number of prime ministers, the last number of ministers, the last number. You know, it's, it's been a really great journey for me and a very rewarding journey for me. And combining that with my farm life, um, which has made it all real. I just absolutely love your initiative from the NFF, the Ag Career Start, which is giving hundreds of young Australians the chance to try agriculture for the very first time and consider a career in ag, regardless of their background or where they grew up. And I know that coming from someone like me who's not from the country at the time when I really wanted to get into it, it was almost impossible to find something Um, where I didn't need prior knowledge or experience. Um, Can you tell me about this program? Because I think that Um, this will be incredible for a lot of young Australians. Yeah, look, this is something, um, one of the programs I'm so proud about um, and it's so fantastic to see the team, you know, at NFF still delivering this amazing program and to see the the young people coming out of this program. So, um, you know, part of our um, NFF 2030 roadmap, which has set many of the goals that we had for our industry, and then when I say we, it's 
collective, it's a big collective we of, of farmers and stakeholders right across Australia because when we developed the roadmap back in 2018, we travelled around Australia, 26 locations, talked to groups of people, farmers, um, industry people, all sorts of different people in the preparation of that roadmap about what people saw as their vision for Australian agriculture. And a very big part of that vision, one of those big foundational pillars was the people, um, making sure that we had you know, young people coming into our industry. We maintained new people in our industry. We kept making the connections. So the communications between the consumers and the things were really important. And we needed to keep reaching out to the people in cities that may not have any connection with us, but we're still, and we know now from our research, are really fascinated with us. They just don't have any ways of, of knowing knowing people anymore. And so at Career Start was a program we started um, a number of years ago now, and we worked in partnership with the government. The then government was the coalition government who supported it. And I'm really, really pleased to say that the current Labor government has also just indicated their ongoing support for this program as well. And it's a, what we call a concierge matching program, job matching program. So young people put up their hands and say, yes, I'd like a, a year on farm. It's specially designed for people in the gap year, like just who've left school. But we do take people who've, you know, gone to uni maybe for a year or two and hasn't worked out. You know, we're a little bit flexible in that. Um, and then the, our team then works with those young people um, and finds out what sort of a farm they'd like to be on um, and then matches them with a farmer who's willing to host those young people on their farms. And that's a variety of farms. We have, you know, from right up in the top end in the Territory to down in Tasmania, horticultural farms, dairy farms, cattle farms, sheep farms, grain, cotton, wool, you know, you name it, they're on there. Um, first year we matched 50, last year we matched 75. I think that's hundreds the next year. And um, and gave you know really give them a great experience of our industry and and what it's like to be on a farm, and at the same time we train train them um, in terms of you know offering them the some of the OHS stuff. There's a quite a, a sum of money they can use for training, and it's just so fulfilling to see those young people now actually going on. Um, nearly all of them, to be honest, going on to a career in agriculture. And um, that's just so, so, so exciting. And the farmers too, who often have trouble finding, you know, young people who want to come in. A lot of farmers are saying, we're happy to share what we do. We're happy to share what we do. But how do we find these young people? And might have had some bad experience just putting out ads and stuff themselves. And so to give them the support of our team as well as they're working with the young people is give the young people support, you know, take the young people off and, and they go off to, to, you know, big conferences like Cotton Australia or Grain Growers Young Leaders, all those different things. It's just a completely fulfilling program and I'm so excited about it. So you've had a brilliant response from all of the participants. Yeah, nearly all of them. Um, and um, there's some I can't off the top of my head remember, but the first year I think they all went on to stay in the in agriculture. Um, I think this year it's something like 97% or something like that. Wow. We've had kids change change track completely. They've been enrolled in you know um, things like environmental studies, which of course is very important to farms, but they've sort of swapped that to combine it with an agribusiness focus as well. They've been, so many of them have been asked to stay on, on in their roles. Um, some of them have, and it's just great. It's, um, it's, much better than farmer wants a wife um, <laughs> because it's actually it's actually giving kids careers and connections and you know in these days we used to have you know back 
back back in the day, we all had aunties, aunties and uncles and stuff that lived on farms. If you lived in the cities, or if you lived in the farm, you had a, you know cousins in the cities. Um, we don't tend to have that as much now. We're a really urbanised community. We have lots of people who come and live started to live in our country from elsewhere, and so it's really really important that we keep making those connections and and offer young people a career in our industry, um, because we all think it's so exciting. So it's that's great. Well, that's brilliant. I'm very excited about that program. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Now, NFF is one of many industry bodies uh, and all research points to farmers and producers sometimes being a little bit confused about that. How do we ensure cohesion between these groups to be better represented to government? And do you think perhaps we need less groups? Yeah, look, you know, this is one of the vexing, the very vexing issues. So um, as I've said, you know, I am so 100% supportive of advocacies. Um, but it, it does make sense to me that as we modernise our farms, you know, the way that we do things on our farms now, whether you're talking about livestock, uh, whether you're talking about machinery, whatever it is, it's it's innovative and it changes all the time. So it would make perfect sense to me that, our membership bodies should also, you know, change and innovate and modernise over time. And one, I'm a huge supporter of the unified voice, which is what NFF's constitution, what its, what it's uh, modus operandi is. It's to bring diverse voices of industry together and to talk to government on issues that are common to them in one voice. Because if government only hears one voice, then it has no alternative but to do what that voice says because it knows that it can't. And a great example of that actually um, recently was the EU trade agreement um, where the EU um, actually, the, the, the we've wanted a deal and we still do want a deal with the EU. It's an incredibly lucrative, important market for us, but not at, not at any cost and not at a, a cost where some of our industries were going backwards. And so to be able to all come together under the uh, NFF banner, to be able to work together as NFF, but also, of course, as our own sectors as well, that was incredibly important and, and um, you know, was very powerful. So... I do think at the moment there's a lot of duplication within our advocacy structure. I think there is a lot of money going around and around and around. Uh, farmers do pay voluntary levies to advocacy organisations. They pay uh, fixed levies to the research and development bodies, which is a significant sum of money for the research and development of our industry and the innovation of our industry, which is incredibly important as well, and the envy of many of our farmers overseas to have that RDC, the research and development structure. But advocacy equally is critically important um, because it is the advocacy that provides the input into government policies. And so I, I do think we need to streamline in some ways what we do and how we do it. We need to avoid duplication. We need to have a really good look at um, our structure and how we can offer the farmers the absolutely best, and not just the farmers, but the whole of industry. You know, nowadays we talk a lot about and we realise that the supply chain is, is interconnected. It's it's from paddock to plate. Many farmers are actually involved in in their in delivering, you know, producing their produce and getting it from paddock to plate. So we have those links formed, and I think we need to always be looking at how we can make that the best structure that it possibly can be. Um, and in actual fact, at the moment, NFF is still involved with its members in in um, in and actually charting some of that journey um, as we look at maintaining a sustainable and strong advocacy voice. The ethics around food production have been a huge talking point for the industry during your tenure. How have you married your own experience as a farmer and licensed to operate with those at an industry and consumer level? 
Yeah, the the first thing I think is that we have to um, understand each other as farmers and consumers. And we've sought to do that a lot through, again, some of the programs that NFF has run, uh, Telling Our Story, for example, which has involved, first of all, um, enabling farmers to better tell their stories online. Uh, obviously, social media, the media cycle now, 24-7, lots of people listening to podcasts, um, you know, looking at, at social media uh, all the time. And so it's really important that we have the farmers out there who are engaged on the farms doing their things all the time actually telling their story in a way that's authentic and real and meaningful to to people that are listening so first of all it's the telling our story part of it and enabling and helping farmers to do that um, and on my own farm, you know, it's been good. We've been able to not, I shouldn't say my own farm, our own family's farm. I always get into trouble for that. On our own family's farm, we, um, you know, have opened the gates on our farm too, um, to agritourism, to lots of different visitors from boards, different countries, ministers, that sort of thing, have all have all visited our farm as well. And it's been featured in a lot of different social media campaigns and things. Um, but also then the other part of that is listening to consumers. And again, telling our story has been able to combine the the telling our story part of it and the listening part of it through the research that NFF has done and has enabled us to keep responding to things that consumers are are interested in. Um, there's a huge thoughts. I think some farmers out there uh, think tend to think that you know consumers hate them. They hate you know because you get some of this particularly green greenwash things coming through um, and, you know, things um, that are, that where it might might look like that, that people are just out to get farmers. Well, in actual fact, when you do the research, they're not. Um, they're actually fascinated in what we do, really love animals. They love that we love animals and look after them. Um, they love that we look after, you know, environment as well. They just don't know much about what we do and how we do it. And so I think that talking, as in any main conversation, as in any important conversation that you have, talking and listening is really important. Having your own experience on the farm has enabled me to, I think, authentically engage in, in both of those things. And um, it's it's incredibly important that each and every person out there is taking personal responsibility to take on their share of the talking and the listening um, if we keep want to keep promoting our industry, keep promoting agriculture, keep attracting people to our industry, um, keep growing the best and the brightest of everything, whether it's food or people, then we need to do all of that and to keep sharing our own experiences. Fiona, what achievements are you most proud of through your time at the NFF? Oh, so there's a few programs there that um, I am absolutely so proud of. Um, the Ag, Ag Career Start, um, which is one of the ones that we talked about already. The 2030 Roadmap, which is um, I think what really galvanised people around our industry, really galvanised stakeholders, really galvanised the government to start looking at agriculture really seriously and our own goals that we've all set ourselves with KPIs attached. That's a huge one. Um, the Diversity in Ag Leadership Program, again, it's just it, it started with um, the legacy that I wanted to leave of women in, in, in leadership roles and it involved me knocking on doors to start with to get companies to buy into it, to, to put, you know, support the program and bring young and bring women together. And it's now gone on six, seven years down the track, you know, with well over um, 30 participating companies and um, many a, a fantastic alumni that are taking on jobs all over the place. Um, those 
those sorts of programs for me, just um, the the young leaders programs, there's there's lots and lots there. Most of the programs I think that I'm most proud of are the people programs and um, satisfy the goals in our industry around culture. Um, I do hope that I've changed some of the cultural aspects, particularly of NFF and the way that it does business, um, to make it less confrontational, less political, um, more about advocacy, more about promotion, more about people working together um, for the good of industry than any division. And by nature, I'm a consensus builder um, and I'm collaborative. And I guess I'm, uh, you know, I am really proud of, of some of those changes and the team that's in NFF now that lives all over Australia now. Um, that are actually delivering some of these amazing initiatives on behalf of industry. So many women in ag do look up to you. Who do you draw inspiration from? (laughs) Yeah, um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I tend to draw inspiration from all sorts of different people for different things. So not just one person, for that that I look up to absolutely but um but for for different people like different things and it's often people that are current in reading in who I'm talking to or what I'm doing people that I've said I probably won't name people because I think I'll start leaving out people on that that, that will get <laughs> bad um but I think you know from women and men from from deep thinkers from people that are engaged in already in what I do and people that I'm that I are already in my tribe that support me every day um and people who I think um most importantly are are authentic about what they do and uh, can bring different things into into what they do. So it, it's I also do you know it's an interesting thing, but one of the things that I draw strength from is I just draw strength from from nature um, and being outside outside looking at colors, looking listening to sounds, um, being my own self. Um, and that's where I draw my most strength from is is my inner strength and just being alone sometimes um in an amazing you know outside I'm able to appreciate that but yes inspiration comes from a huge variety of different sources would you have any advice for your younger self or young women in ag in general um, I think young women, uh, first of all, you have to believe in yourself um, and you can do, I was always told as a child that I could do whatever I, I wanted to do um, and that advice um, has really stood me in good stead and I've always believed that I could do anything that I wanted to do even though sometimes I haven't always felt that and I've needed to explore a little bit further um, to actually find that strength or what has driven me but um, I I think it's so exciting now to see young women I'd never really thought and a lot of women in my generation didn't really think that a career at ag or staying home or for me because dad was a manager then probably staying home on the farm wasn't really an option anyway my brother did develop a fantastic career in corporate agriculture um but i think you know my advice would be and i think it's so good to see now that 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 agriculture is a career for you and can be a career for you and um but make sure you take the time to find yourself and find out who you are never listen to that little voice in your head um and um and just keep pursuing what drives you now that you've served your two terms at the nff 
what are your plans? What's next for you? <laughs> well, it has been nice, I have to say, spending a little bit more time at home um, with the gorgeous grandchildren and the husband and my kids as well. Um, but I do have a number of other roles now and um, that's those sorts of roles have developed and opportunities have developed whilst I've been at NFF. And I am very picky about what I do, but I do like roles that are meaningful to me, whether it's about regional communities in Australia and overseas, whether it's about profit for purpose, not for profit, um, things generally, um, where it's about values and it's about connections and it's about customers and it's about the people that you you work for and serve and so my other board roles are all those sorts of roles and I've already joined one other um, government advisory committee uh, in a policy area that I'm quite passionate about and have some good good experience in now and um, some of those smaller jobs probably interest me more not embarking on any other mammoth career sort of jump um, but um, a little bit of travel for leisure would certainly be on the cards a little bit more of taking it easy a little slightly bit easier maybe a little less on the aeroplanes I think the four planes a week that I used to take probably were I think those, those days are gone um, but certainly um, I do enjoy the roles and I look forward to taking on roles that still interest me and where I can add value. Well, thank you so, so much for talking to us. I've absolutely loved our chat and uh, good luck for the future. In the realm of leadership, Fiona stands out with grace and intellect, making her a wonderfully effective leader. One of the reasons Grazy Her was started was because we couldn't see enough representation of women as farmers in the media, a narrative Fiona has reshaped in an extraordinary manner. Thank you so much for your company on today's episode. I'm Sammy O'Brien. Stay well and I hope you have a great week wherever you are in our beautiful country and beyond. And a quick note before we leave, our latest issue of Grazy Her is on sale now. Inside, you'll find our free 2024 Grazy Her and Marcus Oldham wall calendar, as well as an exclusive photographic print to frame. Plus, with every two or three year subscription to the magazine, receive a free Women of the Land Grazy Her and Elders 2024 diary.